Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we meet a Vancouver bartender who turned a pandemic pastime into a popular social media presence. Her TikTok account, Likeable Cocktails, has found a perfect mix of fun and practical, and she now has more than 300,000 followers. We speak with a University of Alberta scientist who's just back from Canada's highest peak, Mount Logan. She and her team extracted a record-setting 327-meter ice core, that's about the size of the Eiffel Tower, that could reveal tens of thousands of years of the Pacific Northwest's climate history. Canada's UN Ambassador Bob Ray joins me to reflect on the 37th anniversary of the Air India bombing and how this country continues to need to do more to remember those who died and why. But first, we hear from the Parliamentary Budget Officer about his new report that shows that the federal government now stands to lose money from its investment in the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Well, a new report out this week shows that the federal government now stands to lose money from its investment in the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The analysis is by the Parliamentary Budget Officer. It shows the net present value of the pipeline is negative $600 million, leaving it worth about $1.2 billion less than the PBO's last estimate in December 2020. You'll remember uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline was bought by the federal government for about $4.5 billion in 2018 after the previous owner, Kinder Morgan, threatened to scrap the pipeline's planned expansion project in the face of environmentalist opposition. Well, the existing 1,150-kilometer pipeline carries about 300,000 barrels of oil a day and is Canada's only pipeline moving oil from Alberta to the West Coast. Its expansion is really a twinning of the existing pipeline and would raise daily output to about 890,000 barrels per day. So the new financial analysis takes into account new developments, such as the budget overruns disclosed in February that pegged the current costs of the expansion at $21.4 billion, a 70% increase from an earlier estimate of $12.6 billion. Well, to clear this all up and explain, joining me now is the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux. Thank you for your time tonight. My pleasure. So what were you tasked, what was your office tasked with doing? You were really trying to get uh, a handle on uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project. What were you specifically looking into? So we looked at the uh, profitability of the, the the pipeline. So we started looking at the project when the government initially purchased the pipeline. And I think it's in 2019, maybe even 2018. And the government bought the pipeline and the right to its expansion uh, at that time for $4.5 billion. And then it got the necessary authorizations to expand the pipeline started work on it with uh, construction costs initially tagged at a few billion dollars. They were subsequently revised up to $12 billion and recently uh, revised again to $21 billion. So initially when the government bought the pipeline, we looked at whether it made sense from purely an economic perspective, from a financial perspective rather, uh, because at the time the government was heavily criticized for buying a pipeline um, allegedly that was going against its green credentials, but the government said at the time, we will reinvest all of the profits into green initiatives. So the question rose, will that generate any profits? And we found that it was barely profitable. With the construction cost for the expansion, we revised our estimates. And very recently, we uh, well, earlier this week, we uh, revised the estimates to look at the impact of the increased construction costs and whether the pipeline would be profitable under this new this new this new data that came to light and we found that it's unlikely to be turning a profit when considering both the acquisition and construction costs and the expected stream of revenues over the next 40 years under a series of assumptions which doesn't mean necessarily that when the government decides to finally sell the pipeline and its expansion, it won't get more than it paid for. It could well be that a private sector entity decides to uh, pay slightly more than the government paid for the acquisition and construction costs. But based on our assumptions, we think it's unlikely to be the case. How much are we talking about here? What is the difference between those original estimates and what you've now come up with? So we estimate that there's about a $600 million gap between the construction costs and acquisition costs and the net present value of all these future revenues. So uh, it's likely to be uh, a loss overall of about $0.6 billion. But that assumes that the in-service date is as scheduled by the end of 2023 
that construction costs do not continue to go up and that the pipeline utilization rate is as per the assumptions that uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline Corporation has established. So if any of these parameters were to change, the profitability could go down or, or up if, for example, we find that in the end, construction costs ended up being lower than the $21 billion, which unfortunately is not very likely given the history so I far. Gonna, I was going to say a past is prologue, at least for those first two elements, it looks like uh you know, those have been, that is what dri- is driving up the cost of this project, right? The, the construction costs and the delays. Exactly. So if the past is any indication of the future, it's unlikely that we'll see construction costs going down. Uh, but you never know, there could be something, a breakthrough that makes it possible, or an in-service date that is uh, advanced. Um, who knows? Uh, but we're not making any of these heroic assumptions. In our report, we lay out the impacts of a delay in in in-service date or um, the impact of further increases in construction costs or a decrease, and same with pipeline utilization rates up or down. And and we see that uh, it has an impact, a material impact on the potential value of the overall operation. You also looked at what it might cost to halt the operation. What would that look like? Exactly. So when we last looked at the report, there were many stakeholders who said, well, it's going to cost so much more than we expected to to build the expansion. The government might as well stop pouring money into it. And if the government did that, uh, we found that it would have to write off immediately about $14 billion if it were to stop the construction of the expansion right now. So it would be a net loss of $14 billion at least, as opposed to just the $0.6 billion if it continues to, to with the expansion, because then the only revenues that would accrue would be the revenues that are currently flowing into the coffers of the corporation that that holds the asset for the existing part of the pipeline and none of the revenues expected from the expansion of the pipeline but the construction costs have already been have already been sorry incurred so these would be sunk costs so that's why um, stopping construction right now would mean $14 billion that have been spent would be wasted, but none of the revenues accruing from the expansion would be generated. What happens to your report now? Just so listeners know what happens to a parliamentary budget officer report. Uh, what, 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 who takes it into consideration and, and who gets to, uh, and, and where does it go? Well, it goes to, um, to the public, it goes to parliamentarians, and then parliamentarians can decide to question the government based on on the conclusions in our report. They can decide to have a debate. Uh, The government itself can decide to tweak a bit the construction or its expectations when it comes to selling the asset. Um, So it's now in the hands of parliamentarians and and the general public to decide what to do, if anything, with this report. The purpose of these reports is to inform parliamentary debates so that parliamentarians from all parties have independent and nonpartisan information that they can use to question the government and tweak or amend policies as they see fit. So in a nutshell, it is not, um, you know, right now the amount of money being paid to build the expansion continues to grow and that makes it uh, an unprofitable, uh, perhaps, uh, project, but at the same time to scrap it would be very expensive. Yes. Uh, I should also add that what's not in the report is the fact that there are benefits that will accrue to the Canadian economy. For example, when Western Canadian Select sells at a discount, that's a loss to the economy. So if the construction of the pipeline ensures that Canadian oil can sell at a better price on the market, these are tremendous benefits for the Canadian economy. And not factored into that report, obviously. No, we looked only at the financials of the pipeline itself. Yves Giroux, thank you so much for your time and for, uh, for going over the report with me. A pleasure. 
Well, it was a day to celebrate in Ukraine, a day to reflect here at home. Ukraine's bid to join the European Union, one of the country's key diplomatic and economic objectives, moving it further away from Russia's sphere is one step closer to reality tonight. The EU has agreed to make Ukraine a candidate for membership, setting in motion a potentially long process. Still, it's reached this point very quickly. Ukraine applied for membership of the 27-nation bloc less than a week after Moscow's invasion on February the 24th. But first, here at home, Today is National Day of Remembrance for Victims of Terrorism to mark the 37th anniversary of the bombing of Air India Flight 182. An explosion brought that plane down, if you remember, back to 1985 off the coast of Ireland on June 23rd, 1985, killing all 329 people on board, the vast majority Canadian citizens. Two more people died when a bomb destined for another Air India flight exploded and killed two baggage handlers at Narita Airport in Japan. It remains the deadliest terrorist attack in Canadian history. It was the deadliest on record before 9-11. Authorities believe the bomb was planted by six separatists. Now, vigils will be held in several cities tonight, including in Vancouver. There's a memorial, of course, to uh, those who died in Stanley Park, also in Toronto and Montreal and elsewhere. Joining me now with more is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, the former Premier of Ontario, also led an inquiry into the Air India attack. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. Good to talk to you. 37th anniversary today of the Air India bombing. Um, Just your thoughts. I know this is something that's very close to you. Yeah, it had a big impact on me when I I was asked by uh, uh, Prime Minister Martin back in 2005 to to try to help the government sort out how it would uh, respond to the court decision, which acquitted two individuals who'd been charged. And that would have been a long, long trial. And uh, as a result of that, uh, the, uh, the, the, he, Mr. Martin concluded and then Mr. Harper concluded, but because he won the election soon after, that there should be a broader public inquiry, which, uh, which uh, took a couple of years to do. But I wrote a report called Lessons to be Learned and spent a lot of time talking with the families, together with Talib Nur Muhammad, who's uh, now an MP, but in, in that, at that time, Talib was my was my assistant uh, working on uh, on the report that we wrote and also doing a lot of work on building the memorials for for the families in uh, in Vancouver and and uh, uh, Toronto and Montreal and Ottawa uh, and really trying to build a, a, a stronger awareness in Canada as to what had actually happened and why it was important for Canadians to embrace this as a as a Canadian event because for the longest time I think we externalized it we tried to pretend that it was somebody else's problem it had nothing to do with Canada but the, as I said in my report that the, the conspiracy started in Canada the bomb was built in Canada it was put on a plane in Canada and the vast majority of the people who were killed on the plane were Canadian citizens so, uh, you know, it's not going to work to say, well, this was an Indian issue or an issue about Indian politics. You say, well, actually, it, it directly involved uh, Canadians and in a very, very direct and, and powerful way. And I think a lot of a lot of the families felt very, very strongly that and I think they still feel very strongly um, uh, because I keep in touch with them that uh, th- this event has still not been sufficiently recognized by Canadians and understood by Canadians as as something that's happened to us. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, the challenge, I suppose, is with the passage of time, the memory fades even further. I, despite efforts to, to 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 the opposite, have we have we done enough in the past decades to try to make sure that Canadians are aware of, of this horrific event and and who was who were the vict- who the victims were and why? I think we've done more than we did before, but I still think we can do more now. I still think there's there's more to be done um, in in fully embracing the the Canadianness of this of this ter- uh, terrible event. Um, I think it makes a lot of some people shouldn't say a lot, but I think some people um, uncomfortable uh, because they they feel that. It's it's really it's really more about uh, politics in India than it is about politics or events in Canada, but I think that's that denies the the reality that 
um, over many, many generations, uh, many people of, of, of Indian origin have made, have made Canada their home, and that this has inevitably drawn Canada into, uh, into this issue, just as we're brought into conflicts in Europe. Uh, we're going to be talking momentarily about Ukraine. Uh, uh, you know, there isn't an issue going on in the world where you can't say, well, we're, we're, we're actually, this is, this is part of a global issue, but it's also become a Canadian issue. How did World War I become a Canadian issue? Well, because Canadians felt completely tied up in what uh, their ancestors and cousins and brothers and sisters in, all over Europe were, were getting involved in. And this is a similar issue. Um, considering that it's, it's highly likely that justice justice may never well be served in this case. Uh, what must then be the lasting legacy of the Air India bombing for Canada? Uh, I think the lasting legacy, I mean, we don't know what the course of justice will be. The, the, I think the, the, the conclusion that both I came to and Judge Major came to was that uh, some of the people involved in the conspiracy have served time in Canada. Um, the bomb maker served time in Canada. He never... Uh, confessed and he never uh, gave evidence against anyone else, um, but he but he was charged and convicted and spent time quite a lot of time in in prison as a result of what he did. Um, but the actual other members of the conspiracy have have not been have not been tried and charged. Although we th we think we know who some of them are, and one of them in particular is was named by Judge Major was named in my report. Um, and uh, that person is, is now is now deceased. I think the most important thing is what I what I've been talking about, and that is the more we can get Canadians to embrace the fact that um, violent conflict uh, took to, to a lot of civilian lives in Canada, and that we weren't really prepared as a country to understand the extent to which uh, foreign conflicts, if you like, can quickly become domestic issues. Uh, and that's, that's part of what it means to be living in the modern world. I think the Americans had to come to terms with it in 9-11. Uh, many other countries, uh, the British have been dealing with the conflict because of the Irish conflict for many, many years. And, of course, many parts of Europe, uh, similarly, it, th these issues have come home or come into their countries. But this is a reality for Canada. And I think it's exceptionally, if we had learned the lessons properly about uh, what happened on June the 23rd, 1985, um, I don't think 9-11 would have happened. Because I think if we had paid attention to it and given voice to it in ways that uh, frankly, I did, and that Judge Major did in his very comprehensive report. Uh, I think the other countries would have had to say, well, wait, and if we'd gone to other countries and said, look, this could happen to you, this is what you have to be aware of. Because many of the problems that we, 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 we identified in the, in the Air India situation, lack of cooperation between the RCMP and CSIS, failure to share important information, uh, inability to, to move quickly with respect to people who were speaking um, other languages other than English, French, and some other languages where we were well prepared, and just a failure to move more quickly to deal with modern conflict as opposed to the historic Cold War conflicts between Russia and the uh, Soviet Union and, and, and the West. All those things were present in, 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 in that situation. We identified them, but only 20 years later and publicly began to make an issue of it. And the second one is this process of memorializing publicly and remembering. Um, we all remember November the 11th. Um, we all remember 9-11. Um, we participated in 9-11. We had our own 9-11. We had June 23rd, 1985, Air India Flight 183, uh, which killed well over 300 people most of them Canadian citizens, all of them completely innocent civilians on a plane in the middle of the air um, early in the morning on, on, on June the 23rd. And we have to figure out how to really get that event and that situation, how more Canadians can embrace it and understand it. Um, 
I, I feel very strongly about it. I actually spoke at the United Nations about it today because I felt that it, today we were talking about the responsibility of governments to protect civilians um, as, a, as a broad issue in the UN and in the UN system and countries around the world. And I said, well, here's a classic example where, where Canada failed to protect its own citizens. We didn't protect citizens who were flying. This, all the systems that were designed to protect people broke down, didn't work. And uh, as I said in my report, everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. And, and when that happens, you have, you have uh, innocent people being, uh, being turned into victims. And I think we have to, to do more to embrace, to embrace the families uh, and to embrace the, the people who suffered as a result. Speaking with Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, uh, we've been speaking about the anniversary of the Air India attack today, June 23rd, the National Day of Remembrance for Victims of Terror in Canada. Uh, meantime, some big news out of Brussels today. Uh, the European Union has granted candidacy to Ukraine. Uh, just diplomatically, that would seem like like a big move for the country uh, after four months of war. It's, it, uh, it's a boost I imagine Ukraine needs. Well, absolutely, because I think this conflict is, is partly about uh, the nature of Ukraine's future and its freedom to help to define its future. Um, having said that, I think it's, it's, it, it's also important for us a little bit of a cold shower of reality. The candidacy for the EU is different from being admitted into the EU. It's a long process, um, as many European leaders have, have said. Uh, it's a process that can be shortened and doesn't have to be as long as it has been made to be. But it, it, it is one where, where there's, uh, I think, a significant opportunity for the Europeans and for the Ukrainians in the process of the transition towards final membership uh, to really move more quickly to uh, help to integrate uh, Ukraine into the European economy. And this is a big deal. I mean, uh, you know, Ukraine still uses the Russian gauges on its on its railways. Uh, there's uh, lots of ways in which uh, trade is not as easy as it should be. Uh, quite apart from the the conflict that uh, has been going on, the war that Russia has been waging against Ukraine, uh, and I think in the context of that of that fight, it's extremely important that. Uh, that Ukraine be uh, the, the economy of Ukraine has to be much more closely linked to that of the West and of Europe, and I think that's the, that's not being imposed by Europe on Ukraine. That's a strong desire on the part of the Ukrainian people to do that, and uh, the more quickly that can happen, and practical ways can be used to uh, to help to, to to defend Ukraine and and uh, to rebuild ukraine uh, the better off we will be and canada will very much be a part of that of that whole process and that's i think very very important for everyone to know we're nearly four months into this war now you've been very vocal about your thoughts on what's happening in ukraine russia's actions uh, what's your assessment now four months in have we done enough to try to help ukraine have we done enough to try to hold russia to account <laughs> Well, I think we're doing a lot to hold them to account. I mean, the thing is, accountability mechanisms take a long, long time, uh, whether it's at the International Criminal Court or the International Court of Justice or other investigations that are ongoing. It's, it's a, that's, that's a challenge. Um, but I, I do think we are, we are putting, Canada is one of the leaders in putting a lot of time and attention into that question. On the, on the defense of Ukraine, I think the, the harsh reality is, no, we haven't, we haven't, when I say we, I don't mean just Canada. I mean, generally speaking, more has to be done uh, because Russia has made um, gains, whether they're permanent or temporary, uh, time alone will tell, uh, in the eastern part of the country that the, the sort of the ring around the eastern borders of Ukraine, they've ex the Russians have extended them. And the fate of several cities uh, in, uh, the, in, in the east, in the southeast, and the center east and the northeast of uh, Ukraine are still very much at stake. And uh, we know what happens when the, you know, what the Russians have done to, to conduct the war. They have destroyed cities. They destroyed the city of Mariupol, 400,000 people. They, they are going to do everything they can to destroy everything in, in their way. Uh, and uh, we don't even know uh, to what extent Russia wants to go further than that uh, in, its, in its military offensive. Uh, 
And I don't think we assume that what Russia has bitten off is is all that it wants. Um, and I, I think we have Canada and everyone in the West has, has given a lot of a lot of weaponry to Ukraine and a lot of defensive weaponry and a lot of assistance on training, a lot of assistance uh, in varieties of ways. Uh, and billions of dollars have been expended. Um, but we need to understand that uh, in the current situation, um, U- Ukraine is is still desperately in need of, of additional ways in which it can defend itself and in which it can put itself in a stronger position from which to negotiate um, a conclusion to the war. Um, right now, there are no negotiations, and we're still struggling to get the port of Odessa opened and very intense negotiations and discussions are underway with uh, with Turkey and uh, with the many other countries involved, and particularly with Ukraine and Russia involved, and we still haven't seen the results of those. So there's still a lot of issues at stake here for, for everyone, including, I mean, obviously, most importantly, for the people of Ukraine, but uh, for all of us. Aubrey, thank you so much for your time, as always. Good to talk to you, Ben, and take good care. Thank you so much for calling. Well, Mount Logan in southwest Yukon, you may know, is Canada's tallest peak at about 19,500 feet. It's also home to ice that is both unique and scientifically very valuable. And that's what prompted a University of Alberta-led expedition to the country's tallest peak and right up to the top of it, the chance to drill down and extract an ice core that, like the rings of a tree, contains clues to tens of thousands of years of the Pacific Northwest's climate history. Getting up there was a challenge, exacting a record-setting, or extracting rather, a record-setting 329-meter piece of ice was also challenging. Getting it off the mountain was no small feat, but it was all a a big success, as it turns out. Joining me now is Dr. Allison Cristello. She directs the Canadian Ice Core Lab at the University of Alberta and was one of those who took part in the expedition. Welcome to the show. Congratulations. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, <laughs> Mount Logan is quite the challenge. I know you're a mountaineer, so uh, so you have it was a it was it was not something you've never seen before. But tell me about the trip. Uh, how difficult was it just to get to where you needed to go? Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's a good effort just to get up there to Logan Summit Plateau for sure. But yes, uh, climbing climbing Mount Logan first before before drilling the ice core up up top was a, a challenge in itself. We climbed. The King's Trench route, which is the standard mountaineering route up Mount Logan, um, so we flew into into base camp, which is around ninety five hundred feet, and then over the course of ten days, allowing our bodies to acclimatize, we we climbed the route up to um, up to the summit plateau, which is at seventeen and a half thousand feet, um, and there's some becoming more and more technical, actually, ice falls on the route and um, some fun mountaineering challenge sections. So it was, um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was a, a nice challenge just getting up there for sure. Certainly, though, what the payoff was, was well worth the journey. What it is, what is it that you were up there looking to extract? Well, we were looking um, we were looking to extract a surface to bedrock ice core up on the summit plateau. And we've always, we being ice core scientists, um, have sort of always known that that there's unusually deep ice sitting up there on the plateau and uh, unusually deep for, for the top of a mountain. Um, and because it's unusually deep, um, it's always been hypothesized that there's very, very old, you know, several tens of thousands of years old ice sitting up there, which again is... Uh, unusual and unique for outside of the polar regions. Um, so, so this was the target to, to hopefully locate and then drill the hypothesized very old ice that's sitting up there on the summit plateau. I understand you did in fact find it and extract it. How does that work? <laughs> obviously, obviously that's not easy at, uh, on the top of a, of a tall mountain. Well, I think we did. We, we don't know the bottom age yet, but um the way we did that really was we did it over two years. So last year um, I also climbed Logan with, with a much smaller team and we did a radar survey, which was sort of the, um, the main thing that we did to locate the ideal ice coring site. So we pulled uh, two different radar systems all across the 
huge summit plateau, looking both at the internal stratigraphy of the ice, you know, for, for, for parts of the, the glacier up there that are undisturbed and have really nice stratigraphy. So we know that the, the age scale will, will look nice and, and won't be disturbed. Um, but also looking for places where that really precious, very old bottom ice that's down near the bedrock interface is also undisturbed. Um, so the, you know, the, the depths over the summit plateau vary hugely from, um, you know, from a hundred meters to over 400 meters deep in some spots. And now those 400 meter plus deep spots turned out not to be the best for drilling. They had bottom ice that looked like it was quite disturbed and, and things like that. So, um, so the spot that we ended up settling on was still over 300 meters deep, but basically from underneath our skis all the way down to the bedrock interface looked, um, looked beautiful, just really, really nice stratigraphy. So um, yeah. knowing, knowing that, how do you extract 327 meters of ice um, from up there? How, how does that work? It sounds, it sounds like a delicate procedure. Yeah. In some ways it's delicate. In some ways it, it looks like the opposite with all the heavy machinery, but um, yeah, that was this year's challenge was actually drilling it. So yeah, the way it works, I mean, we, so we climbed up there of course, um, and we had, we were totally self-sufficient for two weeks. We had two weeks of food and fuel and everything we needed to get up there, but we couldn't bring the drill and it's 900 pounds. We couldn't bring the generator. Um, we couldn't bring a, a dome tent to allow us to drill in really bad weather. So all of these things, of course, had to be flown up there once we did make it up to the summit plateau. Um, so there was quite a bit of high altitude flying involved, um, which, yeah, also in part because helicopter payloads at 18,000 feet are about 300 pounds. Um, so the drill alone was three loads and things like this. So there was a lot of flying once we got up there to get the drill equipment up there. And then, and then the drilling began once we set up. So, so the way we do it um, with this particular drill, it's called a Canadian eclipse drill. And we drill a meter at a time. So it's a big tipping tower drill that has this vertical position where we drill down again, one meter at a time and retrieve a meter. And then the whole drill swings into this horizontal position. You pull the ice out and package it up into a box and do this over and over and over. Um, so yeah, because of kind of the nature of this kind of drilling, the, the character of your days changes over time. You know, you can imagine in the first few days, ice is flying up at the surface. The drill doesn't have very long to travel to drill its meter and come back up to the surface. But when you're 300 meters down, it takes a really long time just for the cable to lower the drill, you know, down to 300 meters, drill from 300 to 301, and then <laughs> come all the way back up. So, so the days, even though, you know, even though it's a, a repetitive process, um, the days are different. Bit by bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> just for listeners who may, who may, that's about, that's over a thousand feet. And for instance, a tall skyscraper in Toronto, such as first Canadian place is about the same, the same height as that, uh, as that ice core. So you did manage, I gather, because it was probably one of the highlights of the journey. You did manage to extract it and in pretty good shape. I understand. In incredible shape. The ice was beautiful all the way down to the bottom. Um, some of the things that we, that we hate to see because it, down the line when we're when we're cutting and analyzing the ice um, are are difficult to deal with shattering um, from the big pressure changes and things like that um, you know they they did happen so they did happen um, but not at all to the extent that I would have expected um, considering how deep we drilled without using a drilling fluid um, so the, the the ice quality was amazing which bodes really well for for the analyses to come I'm speaking this half hour with Dr. Allison Costello. She directs the Canadian Ice Core Lab at the University of Alberta. We're talking about a recent trip that she's made with a team to extract a large and a very deep piece of ice from uh, Mount Logan. Uh, and uh, I guess the, it worked out very well. It's, it's quite intact. Where is it now? Do you just, how did you get it off the hill? The hill, the mountain, <laughs> the mountain so to speak. Well, <laughs> um, each meter of ice is put into an ice core box and 
nine meters fit in each box. So we, and each box weighs about 80 pounds. So 35 huge ice core boxes were flown off three at a time by a helicopter (laughs) from the summit plateau on a long line um, out to out to Silver City, which is the the name of the landing strip in Kalani National Park, where we had a basically a, a freezer unit sitting waiting to receive the ice. It was a, quite the logistical puzzle to plan this project. <laughs> I was going to say it must all be worth it because I gather what you've uh, what you've retrieved is going to sh- shed a lot of light, or at least tell quite the story about a whole number of things. What 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 can you learn uh, from 372 meters of ice that's all the way down? It's like a history book, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a hard question to answer because <laughs> because there's, I think. Um, there's so many different things we'll learn. And right now I have no idea, um, but I can give you an idea of some of the things that we are, are certain to be measuring over the next few months. Um, so we, we cut the ice up into, into different sticks that go into different analytical instruments and one such stick, um, sort of the innermost, very pristine part of each segment of core, um, will go into a into an ICPMS or a mass spectrometer, and this gives us all a whole suite of elemental information. So things like heavy metals. Um, now another stick will give us a whole suite of major ions, things like sea salts and things that come from the ocean, and tell us something about changes in ocean conditions off the coast in the past in the North Pacific. Um, we measure oxygen isotopes, which are our proxy for temperature in the past. Um, And one other thing that I'm really excited about with this particular core, just because of where it is on the earth, um, is is that we plan to do a a long-term wildfire reconstruction. And um, so we can look at we can look at not only changes in frequency of wildfires um, over the full length of the record, but also um, we have ways now of looking at what was actually burning and did that change over time as well. So there's, um, yeah, there's just a, oh, a, lot, many. Of, a, a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Years worth of things to learn. <laughs> yeah. I imagine it must be bringing all that ice back. I gather you have it now stored where you are, but bringing it all back is kind of like taking, you know, uh, the entire encyclopedia out of the, out of the library to, to, to quote an old phrase, um, but so much <laughs> yeah. to learn. Uh, how far back are we talking in terms of history? Well, we, we, we really don't know based as a, as a, as a real guess based on other work that's previously been done on, on Logan, we're hoping over 20,000 years old, potentially 30,000 year old ice. That's that's remarkable. And, and what is the difference between being able to extract it from somewhere like that's mm. non-polar? Yeah, good question. Um, I was sort of saying how unique this sort of spot on the earth is. Um, and the, and the, the reason really to go through such an effort like this is because we only have records like this, 20, 30,000 year old kinds of records or older from the polar regions. And ice cores from the polar regions do tell us lots of things about global climate, but they also contain information specific to where they're from. They capture local and regional in uh, regional climate variability. So if our longest term climate records are basically all from the poles, there's a lot, there's a lot of unknown between them, basically. So there are a couple spots, Logan, of course, being one of them that have this really valuable potential to tell us something about regional climate in this case in the North Pacific uh, that we cannot learn from a core that's from Antarctica or from the Canadian high Arctic or, um, or, you know, from the Arctic in general. Right. Where do you start or, or, or how, what kind of timeline do you have now? And what do you tackle first? Well, if we do have an ambitious timeline, um, we're going to be imaging and then physically processing. So cutting up the ice um, in July and August. So before the end of the summer, it will all be partitioned up, um, ready to go to various labs. And then the plan is in October, you know, before, before the end of the fall, um, 
that elemental analysis and major ion analysis that I was mentioning, which is really a, a bulk of of the data, um, we we will have in hand by then. Um, so, so yeah, I would say in general before the end of fall 2022, <laughs> um, we're hoping to have a huge amount of the data set in hand. I imagine there's a lot of people around the world eager to see what it is that you, that uh, that the ice tells. Yeah, and there's a huge team of people working on this, which I think is um, also just one of the most incredible parts of of ice core science and projects like this. They involve so many different scientists um, with different expertise, and it's it's really incredible to be a part of. Well, it sounds like you you pulled off quite the feat. Needless needless to say, it's uh, congratulations. We look forward to seeing what data you find and what story it tells. Uh, Allison Costello, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much. Well, a lot of us or all of us had to try to make the best of a bad situation uh, during those early days of the pandemic. I tried to cut my own hair. It didn't work out very well. I'd never owned clippers before. I certainly never cut my own hair before. Um, and it was okay. There were some bald patches there. Some of us actually got up to some pretty cool stuff, some pretty successful stuff. Um, bartenders, of course, were one of those professions that were really left out in the cold for a while. Bars were closed uh, for long periods of time in many parts of the country. Uh, it was time to try new things. One great example is Vancouver's Caitlin Stewart, who turned to social media to teach anyone interested on how to recreate some of her bartending magic at your very own home. And it turns out she managed to reach a far wider crowd, and I mean a far wider crowd, than would ever be able to sidle up to her bar. She now has more than 300,000 followers on her Likeable Cocktails TikTok account, and one of her posts on the usefulness of a twisty bar spoon, and I confess I had no idea what a twisty bar spoon was for until I watched it, now has more than 160,000 likes. Here it is. Now, bar spoons have many uses. They're not just for stirring down cocktails, and there's a variety of them out there in different shapes and sizes. I'm going to show you one of my favorite uses for the spiral bar spoon. It's practical, but it's also kind of a party trick. So one of the reasons for the spiral handle design is so that you can pour carbonated beverages down it without them fizzing over. It also takes the soda all the way down to the bottom of the glass with minimal loss of carbonation. And there you go. A fun, cheeky way to pour down your spiral bar spoon. Cheers. Oh, it's been a perfect recipe for success, stuff like that. Caitlin Stewart joins me now from Vancouver. Caitlin, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, Ben. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. So how, how did this happen? Were you just sort of sitting thinking, hmm, I wonder if I made a TikTok video about, about uh, cocktails. <laughs> this might be a good idea because it's harder than it looks, I think. You know, it's it's one of those things that, I mean, listen, social media has absolutely taken off the last couple of years, I think, partially due to the pandemic because we have a lot, we had a lot more time on our hands. So uh, creating videos that I could engage with, you know, my regulars that I wasn't seeing anymore on a regular basis um, is what kind of started it all. And then I found a bigger audience. And, you know, like you said, the power of social media, one random post kind of takes off and a whole bunch of other people started following along. And here we are now. <laughs> yeah. Did your regulars get upset that all of a sudden you had all these other people at your bar, so to speak? <laughs> thing of it too right it's it's these people that i you know used to see on a maybe a weekly or monthly basis and now they they, they drop me notes all the time and they're like hey i tried this recipe i tried that recipe or or i read an article or i saw you on this and it, it's rather entertaining to be honest <laughs> yeah it sounds it uh, how was it at the beginning was it a bit hit or miss as you tried to figure out um what to do and how to do it yeah most definitely i mean like you said you social media is is kind of very saturated sometimes oversaturated at times so for me, it wasn't really about the views and the likes and, you know, all the followers. It was just the content that I was putting out there. I've been bartending for 17 years and I enjoy what I do. I love what I do. So if I could, you know, impart some of that wisdom and what I've picked up over the last 17 years with other people and make it a little bit more accessible. Um, and now people can actually make decent cocktails at home and do some fun tricks and show offs to their friends. And it, it was about the quality that I was putting out there more so than anything. Yeah, what have been what have been your greatest hits so far? What are the ones that have really obviously the one that we just played about the twisty bar spoon, which I knew what yeah. the spoon was for. I just didn't know what the twisty was for. Uh, you know, just, uh, in my own defense, but yes, uh, any other greatest hits? 
Yeah, definitely. You know, it's sometimes it's the, the ones that really surprise me or the videos that I put up and I'm like, I don't know how many people are actually going to you know, try this out, this new technique. It's a little bit more advanced than what I would normally do. So there's been a few times where I've put out some uh, clarified milk punches or I've fat washed a spirit with like bacon grease or sesame oil and they really took off and, you know, they're like in the millions of views and you're like, what the heck? Okay. All right. We got a lot of people out there that are bacon fat washing uh, whiskey sours and, and loving it. So it's great. <laughs> as the, was there uh, I mean, you must get a lot of feedback as well because people can instantly react to what it is that you're doing. They can try it at home and then you hear whether it's been a success or not. Cause I imagine some of this stuff does take practice. Oh, for sure. And like, like I said, like doing it for 17 years and, you know, I, I've been very lucky to travel around the world and do what I do what I love and doing it now from the comfort of my own home is, is a lot less taxing, but uh, it's nice to impart that wisdom that I've kind of picked up throughout the years. And honestly, I think people now appreciate the, the art and the craft of, you know, cocktail making a little bit more. Um, it's kind of like when, when I watch cooking shows and I'm like, oh my gosh, the, the work and effort that it takes to put into one single dish now people kind of see that on the other side and they're like, oh, okay, no wonder that cocktail I just had maybe cost 15 or $18. <laughs> so the appreciation factor is great. It's because it happens so fast, I think, because you're, you're so skilled at it that it looks like magic because it's happening quickly, right? It's always um, unlike maybe a meal that you, I guess, cooking shows you would see. But yeah, I've always been impressed. It's, it's when, you're, when you're at a bar and you're watching a mixologist, so to speak, um, yep. make a drink for you, just how... Uh, just how quickly it's done and how much how precise the work is you know it's uh yeah it's, it, takes, it's it takes years to get there but uh <laughs> it takes years to get there but it's 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 a skill and a craft that i love that's kind of the reason why i've stuck with it for as long as i have uh it's great fun i thought i thought there were, and, and i'm probably completely wrong about this um but has there ever been sort of a, a code amongst like magicians where you're not really supposed to give away all the tra- trade secrets that's part of part of the allure <laughs> i mean I'm sure there's some old school bartenders who who have that kind of that thought and notion. Um, well, I don't know for myself, I, I'm not a big fan of gatekeeping my secrets. So even for like younger bartenders that, you know, uh, have come to me and asked for advice along the way throughout all these years, I am very apt to offer up any tidbit of information to help them on their journey um, in this, in this world that I love so much of cocktails. So I, I love to offer up any bit of information. I mean, there's some trade secrets, you know, like a grandma's secret sauce or something uh, that I might keep to myself. But for the most part, I give it up. <laughs> <laughs> is it uh, is it tough to come up with new ideas all the time? I mean, it's uh, I, I think you know, for anyone who has to be in the creative in the cre- content creation business, it is sometimes tough to come up with ideas. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's one of those things where you're kind of always drawing inspiration from lots of different things, whether it's you know music that I'm listening to or a, a dish of food that I just ate, um, you know, you're trying to grasp little bits of information it, or inspiration, sorry, but also it's one of those things too, where you're like, you kind of have to see where the trends are. So if people are really into, you know, spritz style cocktails, cause it's summertime, you kind of have to start to hone in on that. Or if somebody really wants to learn how to make, you know, a proper martini, you kind of hone in on that. So it ebbs and flows, uh, quite a lot, which is, makes it a little bit more interesting for me. But at the same time, yeah, it, it, you draw a blank and you're like, I don't know what to do today. <laughs> do you get requests? You must get requests. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's so funny because um, I put up a, a kind of ask me anything the other day and I had so many people asking for the perfect dirty martini recipe. And I was like, wow, I guess dirty martinis are coming back in fashion because I've had more requests for dirty martinis than anything in the last month or so. And I have to start on that one. Yeah, what is the key to a dirty martini? Not too much olive juice, is that, is that right? Well, I mean, that's the thing. The martini is such a personal cocktail that it's really hard to give, like, one recipe, you know? Because, like, for me personally, I'm like, the more olive juice, the more saltiness, the... <laughs> oh. I think we may have lost Caitlin Stewart oh, ever so briefly. Did you get me oh, back? she's back! Yeah, she's back. She's back. I'm Apparently, the, who, the 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 guard, the gatekeepers of the perfect dirty martini were had you, you cut know? off there before before you spilled another Yikes. another co- cocktail secret. They're listening. <laughs> um, so, what are some of the things that you that you've had the most satisfaction in showing people how to do? Because it it, it you know a good drink. There's a reason why they taste great uh, when you go at a not quite as not quite as great depending on the drink, but not quite as great when you make them at home. Yeah, you know, it's really fun to teach people how to make cocktails, um, you know, with egg whites even. 
a lot of people are so afraid of using uh, raw eggs and drinks. And so trying to, you know, break away from like, don't worry, it's, it's not terrible. It's not bad for you. You can actually do this and teach people how to do it properly. I think that's kind of the, the biggest wow factor for somebody to make a, a cocktail at home with an with a egg white in it. Um, so that's, that's always kind of fun for me to do, but then also doing like the really cool, like old school recipes, like you say, like a milk punch and you're clarifying a, an entire cocktail through milk and people are like, I don't understand how this works, but it did. And that's kind of cool. So, <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, um, oh, our technical producer, Phil was saying lots of ice He th- is one yeah. of the keys. Is that a good, is that a good one? Absolutely. You know, ice is our friend. Ice is what brings us dilution. It brings us chill and it brings all the ingredients together. I think a lot of people, when they're making drinks at home, they only put a couple of ice cubes in a shaker or in their mixing glass. But the key is more ice, the better. That's always because when you open up the freezer, you only have two little ice cubes left. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So have have you gone back to your your pre-pandemic position or have you taken up this full time? Well, you know, I mean, I kind of had to adjust like many people. Um, so I kind of shifted gears and I, I'm a full-time consultant. So I get to help oh. on lots of different projects around the city and actually around the world, which is fantastic. Now that I'm oh. able to travel again, too, which is great. Um, so, yeah, I've kind of taken on the job of a full-time consultant. So I get to uh, create beverage pro- uh, uh, programs and different cocktail menus for many different places around the world, which is awesome. Oh, congratulations. And you still get to keep in touch with your regulars because they see you on social media. Exactly. It's it's the best of both worlds, I tell you. <laughs> uh, you've bartended all over the world. Before I let you go, um, I've been to I've, I've been to lots of been to lots of places. Kyoto, Japan, I thought had the coolest bars in some strange way because it was so uh, the bartending there was so precise. But uh, what yes. was your favorite spot? I mean, anytime I get to watch a Japanese bartender work their magic, it's literally like watching a conductor, you know, conduct an orchestra. It's so beautiful. Um, One of my favorite places that I've ever been to, um, yeah, Taiwan is another amazing um, city for cocktails. And uh, Sydney, Australia is top notch. They've they've got some amazing bartenders and uh, their their programs are incredible. But honestly, every little piece of bit in the world, every every place has a special spot in my heart. So it's hard to pick just one, but they're, they're working magic around the world. And, and just to preview, what's up next for Likeable Cocktails? What can we expect on the next uh, on the next video? Well, I mean, it, it is summertime almost here in Vancouver. I feel like the sun is starting to come out a little bit more. So, you know, we're getting into those summertime cocktails. Like you said, the spritzes and the sangrias and, you know, all the mojitos one can handle. So uh, I'm going to be doing a little more summertime cocktails as soon as that sun peeks its head out. There you go. I hope it does soon. Caitlin Stewart, thank you so much. Congratulations on uh, on a great mix. That's fantastic. Cheers. 